prayer requests are being circulated, finally. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Usually after class, people come and ask me questions, which is great. Please keep doing that. Or making comments about the lesson. And I normally don't repeat them to uh, avoid embarrassment and things like that. But I did have one last week that I just thought was fascinating. Uh, A guy came up to me after class and said that uh, years, years ago, he had been asked to teach the book of Romans. And he said, I didn't know anything about the book of Romans. I wasn't even a believer. He made it to the third chapter before he was converted. (laughs) So the book of Romans is a powerful book. Last week, we did the introduction stuff. We talked about who wrote it, Paul, Saul, a converted Jew, an enemy of the believers. He was tracking them down, trying to kill them, and God literally knocked him down on the ground and converted him. And he became a teacher to the Gentiles. He was persecuted repeatedly. He started churches all over the known world. Who did he write it to? The church at Rome. We had a discussion about who the church of Rome uh, consisted of. It was believers. They were Jews. They were Greeks. They were a hodgepodge of this and that. Uh, I think it's interesting, as I said last week, that you have people who want to go to great lengths to talk about was it more Jewish or was it more Greek? Uh, Who had the most influence? And the answer is yes. It was Jewish and it was Greek. And we see it throughout the book of Romans where he is repeatedly addressing the Greek community, the Jewish community, and at the end of the day he says it doesn't matter. But it is written to believers. It is interesting because we're going to talk about the gospel. And sometimes we think about the gospel as something that unbelievers need to hear. That guy over there, that pagan, that unbeliever needs to hear the gospel. No, we as believers need to continually hear the gospel message. That it is the work of God in us from, as we will see at the end of today's lesson, from first to last. So, what is it about? It is about the gospel. We ended up by jumping ahead to verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And if things work out, that's where we're going to end today. But the way things go, it may not happen. Because we're going to start verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When Paul starts the letter, the first thing that he wants them to know is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea of servant is interesting because most of us in a church situation like the idea of at least pretending to be servants. You know, I'm willing to serve you as long as I am still in control. As long as I get to call the shots about what service I do, I like the idea of being a servant. We don't like the real idea of being a servant, which means that somebody else gets to call the shots. Somebody else gets to set the agenda. In a moment, we'll see the verse where he says that he wanted to go to Rome, but was prevented from doing so. Why was he prevented? If he wanted to go, go. I mean, hey, preaching in Rome is a good thing. Go. Because the Holy Spirit was directing him to go to certain places. And eventually, when he gets to Rome, he's going to get there in chains. He isn't going to be traveling first class. He's going to be locked between two Roman soldiers and dragged to Rome. Why? Because he is a servant of God. He is a servant, and as a servant, he lets God choose the means, the opportunities, the goal, the day-to-day activities. I mean, let's face it. If you or I were writing a book, we would start with our resume of all the things that we had accomplished. The most important thing that he wants us to know is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. And just to remind us, Jesus is his name, Christ is his title, Christ means Messiah, so it is Jesus Christ. In a moment we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ, so Jesus is his name, which means what? Come on, somebody was awake when we did Joshua, right? Savior which is what Joshua means, which is what is the Hebrew version of Jesus, which is the Greek name that we call him. Christ, Lord, Lord means that he is what? In control. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle? Pardon? A follower? Pardon? Pardon? Go ahead. One who's chosen, one who is sent. In the New Testament connotation, it has the idea of someone who had seen the risen Lord. We talk about the 12 apostles who traveled around with him. Then one got bumped off and they added another one in his place. And then Paul shows up. But wait a minute. Paul didn't see the risen Lord. Or did he? Yes, he did. He was an apostle born out of season, as he says. He saw the risen Lord in a vision. Guess who knocked him off the horse? Okay. He had seen Christ. Now, it is interesting because many of his letters begin with this acknowledgement that he is an apostle. I believe that there were those who questioned that. Because he was not one of the original group. You know, anytime you form a group, 
There's the real group, and those are they're the latecomers to the group. Yes, oh, you're waving to him. Okay. An apostle was called to deliver the message of Christ to the world. We're actually going to have a nice um, debate about this in about 10 months when we get to the last chapter and we look at some woman who was called an apostle. Oh, well, we better not go there yet. We'll get there on the last chapter. Observation number one, nobody chooses to be an apostle. It's kind of like a prophet in the Old Testament. God would come and find someone to share his message, and he would grab them and say, you're it. Now, there were people who wanted to be prophets, and the scripture has a lot to say about them, namely that they are false prophets. Why would you want to be a prophet? A little, huh? A little prestige, a little esteem. You know, life is good. Me and God, we're like this. You're over there on the outside. You want to know what God wants to do? Come talk to me. I'll let you know. It may cost you a few bucks, but hey, it'll be worth it because God and me, we're just like this. Unfortunately, if you look at the life of a prophet in the Old Testament, it's not the best job in the world. They were hated, they were beaten, they were thrown in pits, they were killed, they were abused verbally, physically, you name it, they got it. Nobody chose the real job. They chose a semblance of it, something that was kind of like it but not really. And in the same way, no one chose to be an apostle. Some wanted the honor, some wanted the prestige, but when the going got tough, it demonstrated who the apostles truly were. What happened to the apostles? Martyred, 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 killed himself, somewhat martyred. And then there was Paul, martyred. Let's face it, it wasn't a job that you and I wanted to have. To me, it is one of the best proofs for the reality of the resurrection. Here we had a group of people who one day sitting in a room After their teacher had been killed, they were sitting in a room and they decided, let's tell the world that he rose from the dead. Let's just do it. Let's just make the whole thing up, tell the world we saw him, and get on with it. Rah, rah, Christianity was created in the back room. I could follow that. I could believe that. Until the first guy showed up with the pointed sticks and started stabbing you with them. And then what would you say? Yeah, we were in a dark room and we made the whole thing up and the body's over there in that cave. That's what you and I would do. There, were, there have been lots of people in history who have died for things that were false. 
but they believed them to be true when they died for it. You've got to really wonder about these people who died for something if they really knew it was false. It isn't going to happen. Chuck Colson talks about that in his book about his conversion where he says Watergate happened and if all we did was keep our mouth shut, nothing would go wrong. We couldn't keep our mouth shut. At the first hint of difficulty, someone squealed. And he goes, how could we expect these apostles to all die for something unless it was really true? Paul called to be a servant and an apostle. Called. Called. We'll have a long discussion about what that word means when we get to chapter, I don't know, chapter 9, and we talk about the fact that all of us have been called to something. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets to the Holy Scripture. Sometimes we think the gospel is just something that showed up with Jesus. First off, what does the word gospel mean? It simply means the good news. Okay? You won the battle. You sent your people back to the uh, home city to tell them. They spread good news that we had won the battle. That was gospel. But in the context of the scripture, the gospel is the good news that Christ has won the battle. What is the battle? The battle over sin. The battle over how we can enter the presence of a holy God. The gospel is the good news of salvation. And it is the main theme of the book of Romans. More about that to come. The gospel of who? God. We're going to see throughout the book it's going to be the gospel of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. At one time it mentions it as my gospel, Paul speaking, but it is the gospel that he is proclaiming as contrasted to the gospel that other people are proclaiming. And that's the thing we need to remember. There are lots of people out there with a lot of different gospels. You do this and all your problems will be okay. You do this and all your problems will be okay. You do this and this and this and this. But there's only one gospel, and that is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. He promised beforehand through his prophets. Go back to the Old Testament. You see, generally in our minds, we think of Old Testament Law, beat people over the head with a club. New Testament, grace, everybody's nice. Well, it's kind of a um, false presentation. If you remember, last year we spent going from Exodus to Joshua, and repeatedly, Christ, excuse me, God would tell them, Okay, I didn't choose you because you were the best. I didn't choose you because you were the smartest, the nicest, the kindest, the largest. I chose you because of the promise that I made to your father Abraham. That is grace. That is gospel. 
Why did he set up the whole sacrificial system to begin with? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You sin, you die, end of story. That doesn't sound very good. God in his gospel made a way out. Now in the Old Testament, it was the sacrificial system that was a picture of things to come. It was a presentation of what Christ was going to accomplish on the cross. But it is the gospel. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sinned. You know, God would have been perfectly right and just to just zap them on the spot. But he didn't. He made a provision. And there's this idea in there that Satan is going to clip and at you and, and then somebody's going to crush him under their heel. Hmm, who would that be? Jesus Christ. The gospel is there over and over again. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection. Who was Jesus Christ? It is interesting, a couple of years ago I was teaching a uh, short little class over across the hall there, The Life of Christ in Seven Weeks. Now, for those of you who know the way I teach, that's impossible, but we did it. But the very first lesson, I happened to mention that Jesus was God. And I had two people come up to me and go, did you say that Jesus was God? I said, yeah. Did you really say that? Yeah. Jesus is God. So, was he human? Yes. What does it say? Descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus was just as human as you or I. He suffered. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had emotions. He was just as human as you and I. And he was also God. Shown to be the Son of God in power. Where does it say this? Concerning his Son who did it. From the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, according to the spirit of holiness. Huh. The spirit of holiness. What do you think that is? Come on, you got to talk. Huh? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. Here we have God the Father. We have God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. At this point, we could have a lengthy discussion about the nature of the Trinity. We're not going to do that. It is important that we understand that that's what the Scripture teaches. That God is three distinct persons. They are not one at a time. They are all there, always present, always existing. <gasps> hmm. All kinds of controversies have come out of that discussion. Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Why was it necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead? 
You see, there's lots of people, I've talked to some of them, who think Jesus was a great teacher. And then he died. End of story. I had a professor one time. She liked Jesus and she liked Socrates. Both great men. Both taught what they believed to be the truth. Both died for what they believed. End of story. Go ahead. It demonstrated that he was God. I mean, we can have a long discussion. If he had died and gone into the ground, would his sacrifice still have been adequate? I mean, it's his death that brought about the sacrifice. And okay, we'll discuss that and argue about that in the weeks to come. But we wouldn't have known it. We wouldn't have known that he was God. We wouldn't have known that it was the perfect sacrifice. But we also would not have known that he conquered death itself. By rising, raising, rising from the dead, he demonstrated that death was no longer to be feared as the end of the story. The church would never have existed. Paul says elsewhere, If Christ be not raised from the dead, all of our teaching is worthless. It is of no value. By his flesh, Jesus was a descendant of David. Why is that important? Because he was able to sit on the throne that David had occupied. Spiritually, He was the Son of God, demonstrated by the power of his resurrection. He is not just another great teacher. He is God in flesh coming to rescue and save us, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called, there's that word again, to belong to Jesus Christ. We are called. What did we get? Through whom we have received grace? Okay. What does grace mean? Unmerited favor is the definition that we always receive. We always get. Huh. What's the opposite of grace? Huh? Justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. We'll have a discussion about that once again in chapter 9. Does anybody get injustice? No. Why? The wages of sin is death. End of story. You die. That's justice. If you're not getting justice, you're getting grace. Grace is not earned. It is not merited. You don't do a pile of stuff and get it. It's grace. Do you have a right to God's grace? No. Can you demand God's grace? No. Can you? No. Whatever the next question is, the answer is no. 
Grace is given because God is a gracious God. Why is that important? We're going to see for chapters 2 and 3 that we are going to try to find excuses why we don't need grace. And every one of them is going to get torn to shreds. Because we're going to end up with the fact that if it's all up to you, you're toast. You know, I've used the illustration in here before. Um, My dad used to call me up and invite me to lunch. And I always liked going to lunch with my dad. First off, because he's a good guy. But secondly, he always bought. (laughs) Okay? And at, at the end of the meal, I would thank him for lunch. Now, the reality is... I have a job, I have a little bit of money, I mean, I do have eight kids, but I have a little bit of money, I could have bought lunch, I wasn't going to starve if my dad didn't buy me lunch, so while I was grateful, I still had the means to do it myself. Many of us believe the same thing about God. Grace is a good thing, oh, I'm glad he bought But I could have done it myself. If things were really, I mean, let's face it. You draw the bell curve. I'm in the top half of the bell curve of all of humanity. I'm in. No. That's not the way it works. What we're going to see in the rest of chapter 1, starting in verse 18 and following, is that you and I may think we're good, but we're not. There is no one who seeks after God. Therefore, what is the only answer? Grace. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That's an interesting phrase to me. The obedience of faith. We know what those mean separately, sort of. Obedience is doing what you're told. Faith is what? Faith is believing what God says is true is true. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. That's faith. huh? Well, yeah. His observation is believing it without having any other evidence. We have some evidence, just never enough. Right. Right. That's a good point. Pascal says that God gives us enough evidence that it is not unreasonable to believe but not so much evidence that it doesn't require faith. If I wait to have every single question and objection answered before I believe God, I will be dead many times over. You know, the interesting picture in my mind is that we kind of think that here's God and here's us, And we're, you know, we're about the same size. He's a little bit bigger, okay? And we're having a conversation. I view it as 
God is the adult, and we're the two-year-old toddler. And God, the adult, tells the two-year-old toddler, don't run into the street. And the two-year-old toddler wants to look at God and say, why? Explain it all to me. Convince me. Show me the statistics. Show me a graph of what will happen. What are the odds of me? This? No. The two-year-old can't understand why until they become an adult. Well, let's take this analogy and stretch it, stretch it, stretch it to an infinite God and a finite us. If God did explain everything to us, we probably wouldn't understand it because we are finite human beings. It takes grace. It takes faith. More on that in just a moment. So obedience is doing what you're told. Faith is believing God to be true. So what would be the obedience of faith? The obedience of faith would be obeying not when you see the result, but because you have faith in the person who told you. The perfect example of this is obviously Abraham. Abraham was told to go. And I'll tell you when you get there. I don't know about you. I've never been on a trip that way. Okay? Go, pack all your belongings, take everything you own, and go, and I'll tell you when you get there. That is faith. But what faith did he have? He had the faith that God would keep his promise. His promise was that his descendants would bless the entire world. And he ends up with one descendant. We'll dismiss Ishmael for right now. And that's Isaac. And God says, kill him. Sacrifice him. Can you explain that, God? Can you explain how that's going to work? Can you explain that? No. By faith, he was obedient. The obedience of faith. Back to being a servant. We like being a servant if we're in control. I'll go down to the Union Gospel Mission and help serve as long as I'm in control. I'm setting the agenda. The obedience of faith says you'll serve where God has planted you. But I don't want to be here. The obedience of faith trusting God with the results while following his will to the best of our understanding God has put us all in different places in different situations in different circumstances with different gifts and different different talents and different this and different that and he wants us to obey him where we are for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to jesus christ to all those in rome who are loved by god and called to be saints grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ it is interesting to me grace is what saved them and then here in his opening he says and i want you to have more grace Grace is not a one-shot thing, okay? 
I got grace, I was saved, I'm done. Okay? You need grace before you're saved in order to be saved, and you need your gra- the grace the next day and the next day and the next day. The implication is, is that we can grow in God's grace. Okay? It's not just, I got it, I'm in. You know, I deal with computers, and we deal in a very binary world. You know, it either is or it isn't. It's a one or it's a zero. And sometimes we think grace is either you got it or you don't got it. No, we can grow in the same way we're commanded to grow in our faith. As we better understand what God has done for us, we grow in grace. And as we better understand and walk in that, we walk in faith. And that is the Christian life. We don't understand it all at the beginning. We probably don't understand it all at the end, but we understand God who is directing our path. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is complimenting the church. He's complimenting the church because he has heard about their faith. Now, that's interesting. You know, it's a nice thing to say, a nice thing to hear. You know, what would they have done that people would have heard about them? What activities would they have been involved in? Uh, What um, demonstrations of their faith? But the observation is people had heard about them, and that's a good thing. I thank God because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. I serve, hmm, with my spirit, the gospel of my son. How does he serve? Well, what does it mean to serve in spirit and serve according to the gospel? Well, sometimes in order to understand something, it helps us to turn it on its head and look at the opposite. What would be the opposite of serving in the spirit? It would be serving in the flesh. What would be the opposite of serving in the gospel? It would be serving in legalism. So, I go out to serve in my own strength and power, and I'm going to beat you over the club, the head with a club, until you like my service, until you acknowledge the fact that I'm a better servant than the guy down the street. That would be serving in the flesh in a legalistic manner. But that is not how he served. He serves them in spirit. In spiritual ways, he meets their needs. And he does it all through the gospel. What does serving through the gospel mean? You acknowledge the fact that you're not any better than anyone else. You you acknowledge the fact that You are as much in need of the gospel as they are, and it humbles the way that you serve other people. He is serving through the Spirit and through the gospel. Without ceasing, he prays for them, asking that somehow my God, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. I want to come see you. I want to do it that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen 
you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Why does he want to come there? So that they can encourage each other. The spiritual gift that he wants to give them is encouragement. Question, is that something we need? Every day of our lives. I always remember, if you uh, have read uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know, they go through a traumatic event. You know, the slough of the spawn, this dragon, this guy, this giant, and they have a big battle, and then they all meet together, and they talk about it. They talk about what God has done, how God has helped them through, how God has directed them, what God has done for them. That is the encouragement of faith. Now, at this point, I could have a long discussion, which would really depress me, about why we don't do this more often. Is it because we lack the faith? Maybe. The battles show up and we just drop dead and roll over and therefore we have nothing to share that we won? Maybe. I don't know. Do we just not know how to do it? Maybe. Possibly. We are called to encourage one another. That is the whole purpose of the body of Christ is to encourage one another to grow in our faith and understanding of who God is. That's why Paul wants to come and visit them. I want to come encourage you and let you encourage me. He knows he needs encouragement. I mean, let's face it. He gets beat to a pulp on a regular basis. You know, he's not just some made-up superhero who takes a licking and keeps on ticking. He's a human being who has seen the risen Lord. And he needs to be encouraged, and he wants to come to visit them. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What was it that prevented him from coming? The Holy Spirit. We see this in the book of Acts. It says, we wanted to go this way, and the Spirit wouldn't let us. The Spirit told us to go this way. I wanted to do this, but... He lived a life directed by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. That I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am under obligation. And he names some different groups of people. Let's remind ourselves how the ancient world was divided. If you're a Jew, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. Those are people who are inside and everybody else is outside. If you're a Greek, there are Greeks and there are barbarians. There are cultured people, Greeks, and everybody else is a barbarian. 
So throughout this whole book, we're going to have Jews and Gentiles. We're going to have Greeks and barbarians. We're going to have Greeks and Gentiles. I mean, we're going to have all these divisions. And as I said, he's going to end up by saying it doesn't matter. But I am under an obligation. What is the obligation that he is under? Who put it on him? Hmm? Jesus put it on him. Why? What is the obligation? To share the gospel with everyone. Now, as we look at the life of Paul, there are some things that are clearly, clearly only Paul's calling. I do not believe I am an apostle. Okay? I'm not. I, that's not I'm not called to visit the Gentiles in Asia Minor. Okay? There are certain things that were clearly calls to Paul. But there are also things that are clearly calls to all of us, gifts given to all of us, that we can look at and say, hmm. And then there are some of them that kind of make us sit back and think, does that apply to all of us today? Question, am I... Are you under an obligation? I'll tell you what I think the answer is. Yes. Let's face it. If I were working this, okay, if I had it all figured out, you know, the day we sin, we don't die because that would be horrible. So there's lots of grace. And then someday we are converted. And the day after we are converted, off we go to heaven. I mean, let's face it, you know, there's some nice things around here, but if I had my choice between this and that, I'm there, okay? Let's just face it, but that doesn't happen. So if I'm not saved and immediately go to heaven, obviously God has some reason for leaving me here. Hmm, what could that possibly be? To have all the fun I could have? To watch all the movies I could possibly see? To collect all the books my house could contain? I'm almost there. (laughs) What possible reason could he have for leaving me here? And that is to share the gospel with those whom I come in contact with. What does that mean? Does it mean that I walk up to them, grab them by the collar, and say, repent or die? Well, that might work sometimes. I doubt it. What it means is living out the gospel wherever God has planted us. And trust me, he's planted you in a different place than he's planted me. He's called some of you to go on mission trips He's called some of you to do this. He's called some of you to do that. Wherever it is, share the gospel. Paul says, I am under an obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. So, in a Greek mindset, who's not covered in that that list of two? Nobody's not covered. You know, we have this idea, I want to go find some people just like me and I'll share the gospel. No, share the gospel wherever God has put you. 
Now, it is interesting when we worked through the book of Acts two years ago, we saw that Paul never changed his message of the gospel, but he would change the style of his presentation. When he was talking to a Jewish audience, he would start with Abraham and work his way forward. When he was talking to the Greeks on Mars Hill, he started with their God that they had a statue for and no name. He would change the presentation, but he would never change the message. So when we witness to the Greeks or to the barbarians, we may have to change our message. I mean, our presentation, but we don't change the message of the gospel. <sighs> Wise and the foolish. That's an interesting comment. Greeks and barbarians, I would have followed up with Jews and Gentiles, you know, just to cover all the bases, but he doesn't. He says, I have an obligation to the wise and to the foolish. Now, it's interesting because we can have a debate who the wise are that he's talking about here. Are these those who are wise in the ways of God? In which case, maybe he's talking about the Jewish community because they at least had the Old Testament. They had the word of God. Maybe. But more likely what he's talking about are those who in the eyes of the world are wise. Those people who think they know the right answer. And he says, I'm going to talk to them and I'm going to talk to the foolish. Once again, foolish has two different connotations, whether you're a Greek or a Jew. If you're a Jew and you've read the book of Proverbs, you know that a fool... is the one that has rejected God. It isn't just, I'm a child and doing stupid things. The book of Proverbs calls that person a simpleton, a simple person. A fool is someone who has rejected God. So these are the people who have actively rejected God. But to a Greek, a fool would be somebody that was uncultured, who wouldn't know philosophy and literature and those things. So I am under obligation to this geographic group and to this geographic group to this intellectual group and this intellectual group let's face it you're under obligation verse 16 and we have minus one minute and we got to the most important verse for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If there is a theme for the book of Romans, here it is. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? I mean, why? I have speculated before that I think, and this is just my speculation, that these Greek converts of Paul's had gone to Rome and had merged with the Jewish and Roman converts, and they were telling people how great Paul was, and the local congregation was kind of going, well, if he's that great, why did he come to see us? I mean, we are the center of the universe there in Rome. Uh, Is he just scared? Is he embarrassed to show himself in the big city? So there may have been some of that. 
And he says, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But what would cause us to be ashamed of the gospel? Is it the fact that sometimes even we think it sounds a little odd? It is interesting. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.22 it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. So if I'm presenting the gospel to a Jewish community, they're sitting there going, you mean all that laws and sacrificial system you're you're getting rid of it all are you a heretic are you just dumb or if i'm presenting it to a greek community with all their philosophy they think you're saying somebody was raised from the dead that's stupid i mean that's what happened on mars hill right he's presenting the gospel he's talking about this the god who created all things here's his name by the way and his son came and died and was raised from the dead and lots of them laughed at him some of them want him to talk to them. And if you, if you wanted to add a third category to this, let's look at the Roman citizen, okay? We have the Jews who are kind of the center of religion, the Greeks that were the center of philosophy, and Rome that was the center of power. So you've got a nobody born in a nothing who had 12 stupid people following him, and he died by a Roman, and... You want us to follow this guy? Where's the power in that? Who's got the power? Who's got that's stupid? Unfortunately, while you and I have probably never talked to a Roman or a true Greek, maybe not even a Jewish person, we get into our heads that maybe it just doesn't sound right. Maybe if I kept my mouth shut, um, I could win them over by giving them a CD of Ted's sermon. That would do it. And there's nothing wrong with giving people a CD of Ted's sermon. But, comma, are we ashamed of the gospel? How can we be ashamed of the gospel if the gospel is the power of God. And we'll talk about that next week. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you, in your grace, have saved us. I pray, Lord, that this week that we would not be ashamed of your gospel, but that we would demonstrate your word and your grace to the world around us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.